0: take a Bible out, find the book of James. I'm glad to be back with you. Last week, my family was out of town. We were in Amarillo. I got to go to church with my grandparents. Uh, I got to sit on the back row last week, and uh, they've got their territory marked out there at their church, and, and they made room for me. I think I stole somebody's seat because the whole row was off, but it was a good Sunday. We had a... Uh, A potter get baptized this morning, and a potter do the baptism. And at the end of our service, we're going to have a potter give a missions testimony. And there were so many potters in the service, I thought about asking Matt Potter to come preach this morning. (laughs) And then I thought, no, he'd probably do it. And so I didn't ask him. Our passage is James 5. We're going to look at verse 1 to verse 6. The topic is money. That's our favorite topic to talk about at church, right? Money. Preachers don't like to talk about it. It makes churchgoers uncomfortable when we start to talk about it. And maybe, maybe that's a result of how we've seen some pastors, ministries, uh, certain people on television abuse money in a church, religion, preaching context. But maybe, at least in part, that's because we have issues in our own heart that need to be dealt with. And one of the things you find when you just preach through the Scripture, it really doesn't matter if it's New Testament or Old Testament, is that the Bible does have a lot to say about money. And so we're going to look at the book of James this morning, chapter 5. We're in the last chapter now of James. I will point out that James first mentioned money back in chapter 1. It's not the first time he's had something to say about money and how we ought to think about money, I'll let you go back and revisit chapter 1 on your own if you need a refresher about James 1. What I want you to see is another important parallel within the book of James that's going to help us this morning make sense of what James is saying in James chapter 5. And here's the parallel. You can't understand James 5, 1 to 6 if you don't understand James four thirteen to 17. Those two passages go together. I realize that in your Bible, there's a chapter break and probably a little bit of white space between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of verse uh, chapter 5, and they put a new heading on there, and all of those little clues that weren't originally there when James wrote this letter, all those little clues when we read it make us think, okay, we're talking about something completely different now. But you need to remember, and I need to remember, that these chapter divisions weren't added to the Bible till around 1205 AD. James wrote in 45 AD. James didn't mean for there to be any chapter break here. And so when you look at this, you got to say, okay, whatever he said in chapter 4 is going to carry over to chapter 5. And there's a clue. If you look at the text, you notice that James 4, verse 13, Says, Come now, you who say, and then he goes into the issue that he's, he's discussing. And then if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, he uses the same introductory phrase Come now, you rich, and then he goes on with his point. There's the only two places in the book of James that he begins a sentence or a thought or a paragraph with this phrase come now, and it's a, a clue written into the text that's sort of like bells going off, and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, he hasn't said this before, and he doesn't say it again, these two thoughts must hang together, and so we've got to go back and remind ourselves what we saw in James chapter 4, so last week, you heard expert analysis on James 4 from Hunter Siegler, you may have noticed I was gone, Corey was gone, which means the youth pastor was in charge. That's a scary thing, right? <laughs> it was a good Sunday morning. Sunday school went fine. Everything was okay. The worship service was great. We had a little issue with the projectors, but Tyler was here. He fixed that last week. Hunter preached. It was all good. Everyone went home and took a Sunday afternoon nap. I didn't get any texts. Nobody alerted me to any problems. And then came Sunday night youth Newcomb. Hunter fell on a kid <laughs> who may have been provoking Hunter. I've heard, I've heard contradictory stories. Hunter says that he was provoked to action. And the other side says, no, I was like, I was like the poor gazelle minding my own business. And <laughs> here he came. We went from broken collarbone... To dislocated collarbone, to some kind of sprain. And luckily the victim's here. He's on the back row this morning. So he can wave with one arm, not the other arm. That's what happens when you leave the youth pastor in charge. But one out away from a perfect game, right? All you gotta do is get this guy out. That's it. Strike him out, you go home, perfect game, name in the record books, and Hunter gave up a home run right there at the end. (laughs) Nine hours before he crushed a poor kid's collarbone, Hunter was up here, and he was talking about James 4, the end of James 4. And what Hunter was saying to you, I looked at his notes, I listened to the recording, this is my paraphrase. You and I need to be very careful about being godless in our everyday life. It's very easy to play the church game on Sunday morning. To come here and to do the church thing, get your Bible out, fill the notes out, sing the songs, all the stuff. But then you go about your daily business the rest of the week as if God doesn't exist. You don't really give much of a thought to him. Your mind is preoccupied with all these other things. To use James's point, your mind is preoccupied. Well, we're, we're going to go here. We're going to do this. We're going to make this money. We have all these plans. And God never factors into any of that. You may have been at church on Sunday morning. That's great. But if you live the rest of your life as if there were no God, outside of Sunday morning, you look just like everybody else, James says, that's a problem. And Hunter reminded you of that last week. That's a problem. You've got to allow God to play a role in every aspect of your life. Not just Sunday morning, not just Christmas and Easter, but God has to be real in every area of your life. How does that connect with James chapter 5? It's pretty simple. James is saying if you're godless in everyday life, right, you may be the church-going person and you never miss a Sunday, but if when the rubber hits the road, the reality of your life, when we look at it as you say, God doesn't really factor into your life much at all. If that's you, we're going to be able to tell it in the way that you handle money. And that's where James goes. Straight from you need to be very careful that God does not take a sideline seat in your life other than Sunday morning. He's got to be all in, in every area, every day, all the time. Or, if that doesn't happen, we're going to be able to see how godless you really are in the way that you think about, the way that you feel about, and the way that you spend money. So our topic this morning is money. One interesting thing I just want to point out to you, and we'll come back to this at the end, In this passage, I believe, most commentators agree, James is speaking to non-believers. People who are not Christians. You may say, oh, thank goodness. Because finally I get a, a passage in James that I just get to throw on somebody else. My neighbor who didn't get up and come to church this morning. We're going to talk about when we get to the end. Why would James include a warning for lost people, non-believers, in a book written to believers? We're going to come back to that idea, so just hang on to it. Here's the big idea. It's really simple. It's classic James. Black and white, to the point, no middle ground. He just says this, those who love money will experience judgment. No caveats, no exception clause. No wiggle room, no legalese or fine print that's going to get you out of this one. James just says this. If you love money, you will experience judgment. So that's the big idea. Let's read the passage, and then we'll pray and ask God to give us wisdom this morning. This is the word of God from James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's the word of God. Let's pray together and then we'll jump in. Father, we are thankful for the book of James. We are thankful for the things we read in this book that are challenging. They're confrontational. They're convicting. Father, and that's certainly true when we read and we listen to what James has to say about money. Father, I pray this morning that we would not try to wiggle out from under the authority of your word, but that we would hear these warnings, that we would think about why James is giving them to us, why he's giving them to believers. Father, that we would live our lives as if you are real, not just on Sunday morning, but every moment of every day, Father, even in the way that we handle our money. We pray that your spirit, as we've already sung, would be present among us, to make your word plain, to illuminate it, and to apply it to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you follow the stock market or you watch the news, you may have noticed that Apple recently became the first publicly traded private sector company to be worth $1 trillion. $1 trillion. There are a number of companies right on the heels that are going to be next. You can look at Amazon and Microsoft and Google, but Apple won the race, worth $1 trillion. That's a number that's hard for you and I to even begin to wrap our mind around. And so the New York Times published some helpful information to help you understand what does it mean when you say this company is worth $1 trillion. So this is, these are some, some statistics from the New York Times. You ready for this? If you add up the big 4 American banks, Citigroup, JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, add them all up together, you get one apple. The big 4. Or you could take every single automaker in the world. Everybody that makes cars. Pick your brand, pick your country, all of them. Add them all up together, Apple's bigger. You could take all of the aviation companies, and in that, what they included, I, I read into the notes a little bit, they're including people who make airplanes, people who fly airplanes, the whole aviation industry, add it all together, Apple's bigger. One trillion is big. One last one they mentioned, you can take the entire American media industry, all the Netflix, all the Amazon Prime, all the ESPN, all the cable news shows, all of the media industry in the United States of America, add it all up together, Apple is bigger, worth one trillion dollars. Now I know you live in the oil patch, people have big companies out here and they work big deals and People make a lot of money. But let's just be honest. Most of us in this room don't deal day-to-day in trillions. Okay? Most of us don't deal day-to-day in billions. And if we're really honest, most of us don't deal day-to-day in millions. Maybe a few of you when you go to work. But most of us don't live in that world. And when you turn on the news and you read about a company suddenly worth $1 trillion, and you try to begin to wrap your mind around how big that is, and then you come to the book of James, and you start to read what James has to say about money, there's a danger. Here's the danger, right? The Bible has many, many warnings about money. Many. And the danger for you and I, is because we don't normally deal in millions or billions or especially trillions that we read these warnings and we say, well, man, I hope somebody shares this with Tim Cook over at Apple. I I hope Larry Page over at Google gets the memo. Like, make sure it comes up in the search results. James chapter 5 for Larry Page. I hope Bill Gates is paying attention when James talks about money. And we look at all these people who have so much more than us, and we sort of let ourselves off the hook because we think, James says, right out of the gate, come now, you rich. And we say, well, I know who's rich. Apple's rich. These companies are rich. These CEOs are rich. These, these fat cats are rich. Surely he's not talking to me. I just listed a few of the references in the Bible that came to mind first when I thought about warnings about money. I mean, we could go on with dozens and dozens, and we're not going to look these up. Let me just mention Psalm 73, an Old Testament reference that is a warning to anyone, whether you have a lot of money or you don't have a lot of money, who is envious of those with money. If you struggle being envious of those who have a lot, it's talking to you, not just Larry Page, not just Bill Gates, not just Tim Cook. Not just Jeff Bezos, world's richest man, but you. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, don't worry about money. Don't worry about it. And if you're somebody like me who's prone to worry about things, money in particular, then you realize he's talking to me. It doesn't matter if you have a lot or a little. If worry is the issue and it's connected to money, he's talking to you. Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler. Jesus is saying, your love for me has to be so far greater, infinitely greater. It has to make make your love for money pale in comparison. And you read about this tragic character in the rich young ruler who, in the end, loved money more. First Timothy six. Paul writes a warning to his protege who was not rich. You understand that? Timothy was not wealthy. He was not the Joel Osteen of the first century. This was not, this was not Creflo Dollar rolling up to church. Here's Timothy pulling up in his in his Bentley. Right? This is a poor man. And Paul writes to him and he says, Timothy, beware of the love of money. Watch out. For the love of money. And Timothy probably thinking, I don't have any money. Paul says, I know that. But you've got to watch. It'll lead to disaster in your life. It'll lead to any number of other sins. Beware of the love of money. All of these warnings, when you read through them and you pay attention, you realize you don't have to have a lot to have an issue with money. These warnings are for people who have a lot of money, and that's a spiritual issue in their life, a sin issue in their life, and they're for people who don't have a lot of money, but still have issues, spiritual issues, heart issues, faith issues that surround the issue of money. And the exact same thing is true of James. Don't let yourself, don't let me off the hook when he starts off saying, come now, you rich. All the things that he's about to say are things that we need to think through in our life. So the question is this. How does James describe those who love money? How does he describe them? A couple of thoughts. Number one, they pile up treasure on earth. If you love money, one of the results of that, that should be evident for people to see, is that you pile up treasure on earth. Notice what James says. He says, "Your riches are rotten and moth-eaten." Most Bible scholars think that he's talking about fancy clothes that, in the ancient world, just didn't last a long time because of the the climate and the environment in the Middle East. You can spend a lot of money on this on this piece of clothing, but it's not going to last. It's going to just get eaten up. And in our Culture in our society, he might sort of say it like, Beware you people who buy all this fancy clothes, it's going to be out of style in six months. It's going out of style, and then what are you going to do with it? It's just going to hang there in your closet. So he says, Watch out for this. And then notice what he says. He talks about this moth eaten and, and they're, they're rotted, but he says this in verse three Your gold and silver have corroded. Literally, what he says is, Your gold and silver have rusted. And it's interesting because gold and silver don't rust. They'll sort of tarnish. They'll sort of get a you know, little film on the outside where you might need to polish it and spruce it up. But they don't rust. And James says, what he actually says is, your gold and your silver have rusted. And you say, well, you know, first century guy, he didn't know a whole lot. He didn't know about chemistry. And he just, he's talking about something that's not his area of expertise. No, I think he knows exactly what he's saying. He's talking about, if you read in verse 2 and 3, he's talking about the last days. The last days. He says, you live in the last days. And you're piling up all this gold and silver. It's so worthless, it might as well be rusted. It's corroded. And all this wealth that you've piled up in the last days, James says, is going to be evidence against you in the end try to explain this. I tried to, to make sense of this this week. Here's my best crack at an explanation. At my house, we have uh, a Netflix subscription. How many of you have Netflix subscription? A lot of you. We have Amazon Prime, so you got Amazon Prime Video. A lot of you guys have that. So we like to watch movies, TV shows, kids watch things. And uh, Brooke and I like to watch movies or different TV series. And my two favorite genres, okay, this is what really gets me excited. And my wife is already rolling her eyes because this is not what gets her excited. I like westerns, right? The dustier the better. I don't like these new westerns where everybody's clean. That's not, I, I want a real western. And I like apocalyptic movies, end of the world movies. You know the kind I'm talking about? The, once Netflix figures out that you like those kind of movies, you can go down the rabbit hole forever on <laughs> End of the world movies, and you start watching some and you're like, this is the dumbest thing, but I gotta see how, what happens. I gotta hang in here. So, end of the world movies. Sometimes the movie is building up to the end of the world, like something's coming and the panic is building. Sometimes these are pretty cool too. The quote unquote end of the world has already happened. Like the aliens already invaded, all the nuclear bombs already went off, Al Gore was right and the climate change got all of us, whatever. The, the world has ended, and there's just a few people hanging on. And the, and the, the movie is about how does life work right there, okay? Lots, all these movies are the same, by the way. They're all exactly the same. And one of the things that happens in almost all these movies is looting, okay? This is when the big event happens. Like the aliens show up, it's time to start looting. Or the bombs go off, people are breaking into 7 okay? All this looting takes place. Here's what you see in these movies. The foolish people go straight for the cash register. Right? I'm breaking into 7-Eleven and I'm going past all the food and I'm going for the 300 bucks in the cash register. Because once the world ends, I need that stack of 20s. Right? It'll be great for starting fires. The smart people go for food. They go for water. They go for the batteries, they go for gasoline, they go for the matches, all the stuff you're actually going to need when the zombies take over, right? And in a weird way, that's kind of what James is saying to us. He's saying, you live in the last days. Like, this is it. And he doesn't mean that tomorrow Jesus is coming, He just means this is the last period of redemptive history. The next big thing in redemptive history that happens, whenever it happens, is that Jesus is coming back. So you're in the last days right now. Why do you need a stack of 20s? Why do you need 10 closets worth of clothes? You're in the last days. What are you going to do with all that stuff when Jesus comes back? What are you going to do with it? These people who live their lives as if God wasn't real, they may go to church on Sunday, but they live their life as if there really was no God, they pile up treasure on earth. You say, well, what's the standard? How much treasure can I have? How many closets of clothes can I have? How many 20s can I have in my stack? How big can my 401k be? I'm not here to give you a list of pharisaical rules. I'm not here to pretend like there's one standard and if you're over or above it, we're going to you know, sort of plot you on some kind of graph. I'm just saying what James is saying. You live in the last days. These are the last days. Why are you piling up treasure on earth? In the end, when Jesus comes back and it's time for judgment, all that stuff is just going to be used as evidence against you. All that stuff that you've piled up and you trusted in and you thought would make you happy, it's going to be proof that all along, even though you showed up on Sunday morning, your heart was connected to earthly treasure, not heavenly treasure. So that's the first thing that James says about money. It's challenging. What does it look like if you love money? You pile up treasure on earth. Number two, these people defraud and oppress the poor. They defraud and oppress the poor. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You owe these people money. You had a deal with them, right? The, The picture here is that you're the landowner, and you paid these folks, probably lower social status than you, to come work in your field, and then you didn't actually pay them, and God knows about it. He knows about it. He knows that you sinned, and you hurt someone else so that you could get ahead. Look at verse 6. He talks about you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. Again, that's kind of extreme language. We talked about that When uh, we've looked at other passages in the book of James, maybe he throws out things, ideas where we say, uh, we haven't really killed each other, we haven't really hurt each other, but James is always boiling this down to a heart level issue for us. And here's the heart level issue when you look at James 5, 4, and 6. He's saying, are you willing to sin against God and do what you know is wrong? Are you willing to hurt other people so that you can get a step up? Maybe that that looks like you physically hurting them so you can get a step up. Maybe that looks like you economically hurting them so you can get a step up. Maybe that looks like you on a a reputation level hurting someone else so that you can get a step up financially. Are you willing to sin against God and hurt someone else for your own financial advantage? That's what he's describing when he talks about people defrauding and oppressing the poor. Number three, they idolize luxury and self-indulgence. They idolize luxury and self-indulgence. Look at verse 5. You lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This idea that we live for our own comfort, that's as American as apple pie. Every commercial you see on television is designed to appeal to the part of your heart that just wants to be comfortable and prosperous. Everything you see, they're appealing to the most sinful, wicked, depraved, base part of you and saying, it's all about you. It's about your comfort. It's about what's going to make you happy. It's about you being safe and secure and everything being okay. That's the mindset of the world. And James is saying this. It's possible that some of you show up every Sunday morning to church, but if we look at your mindset about how you think about money, there's no concept of stewardship like you find in the Bible. No idea of stewardship. The idea of stewardship says my money is not my money, it's God's money, and he's entrusted it to me, and one day I'm going to give an account for I used God's money. Instead, what you think is, I worked hard for this money. I busted my hump for this money. I fight and claw and work hard and sacrifice, and it's mine, and I'm going to do what I want to do with it. And the biblical view is that's not not the situation. This is God's money. He's the one that gave it to you, and you're going to give an account for how you use it. The world has no concept of generosity or sacrifice. The world just says, you just... Do with your money whatever you want to do with it. And maybe if you want to feel good about yourself, you text 853 to the Red Cross and you'll donate five bucks when a hurricane hits. Then you pat yourself on the back. You can do what, what you want with the rest of it because it's yours. Enjoy it. Luxury, self indulgence. The biblical view is God gave you money so that you could be generous. He gave you money so that you could sacrificially give to advance the kingdom and to help those who don't have as much. That's why God gave you that money, not just so you can be a consumer, but so you can be generous and actually sacrifice for the good of others. What does it look like to love money? You pile up treasure on earth, you defraud and oppress the poor, you idolize luxury. And self indulgence. Let's just back up and ask one sort of big picture question as we end this. And this is what I alluded to earlier. The whole letter is written to Christians. We established that when we looked at James chapter 1, the opening verses. He's writing to believers. Throughout the book of James, he uses the term brethren. Or brothers. Some translations even go as far as to translate it brothers and sisters. What he's saying is, I'm writing to Christians, who people who people people who share faith in Jesus Christ. Why in a letter written to believers include a warning where there's no grace mentioned, there's no salvation mentioned, there's no repentance mentioned, there's only judgment promised. Why would he include this warning to unbelievers? And I'll just suggest three ways. Number one. James does want to warn unbelievers. He knows that when the people of God gather together, and a letter like this would be read out loud, there will be people in the room who are not followers of Jesus. That's true in James Day. It's true in 2018 at Odessa, Texas, 4020 East University, right here in this room. There are some of you in this room who are not followers of Jesus. You may play the church game. You may show up and fill in all the blanks. You may know all the songs and listen to Caleb and all that stuff's great, but you are not a follower of Jesus. And some of you may look at this description of people who love money and say, man, he's talking about me. That's how I think about money. That's how I handle money. I've bought into that stuff. And James is warning you. And the warning is the only thing that you should expect if you love money is judgment. Look what he says in verse 1. Come now, you who you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. If you love money, your story does not end well. If your heart loves money more than the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus and the hope of salvation, if money is your functional idol, you're on a dead-end road spiritually. And James is just warning you, you need to weep and you need to howl because misery will come upon you. Secondly, why would he include this warning in a letter to believers? He knows believers will face temptation. He knows that we're going to face temptation. Let's be done with this idea that once you pray a prayer and accept Jesus into your heart, repent of your sin, trust in Jesus, that everything is just easy spiritually. Like that that's the end and then everything else is just sort of coasting, right? We talk to people our myself, our pastors, our elders, our Sunday school teachers. We try to talk to people about this all the time. I talked about it with the potters this last week. Dwayne's been talking to Emily about it. When you get baptized and you make the decision to follow Jesus, that's not the end, that's the beginning. And if you thought temptation was bad before you got saved, just wait till you get saved. It's going to be tough. It's not easy to follow Jesus. That's why Jesus said, you've got to die daily to sin and take up your cross and follow me. You've got to repent of sin over and over and over. You are going to face temptation. And James knows, the people that he's writing to, his church members who have been scattered around, he knows these people don't have much. They're not rich and wealthy by the world standards, but they're gonna face the exact same temptation that everyone else faces. And that's the temptation to make money your God, your little G God. You're gonna face that temptation because it's in your heart. Sin, indwelling sin is gonna lure you in that direction. James has already talked about that. We're tempted when we're lured by our hearts and our desires. And you're going to face that temptation because you live in a godless culture that wants you to think the exact opposite about what James is saying about money. So you've got to be ready for temptation. Number three, why did he include this warning in a letter to believers? I think he wants us to look to Jesus. I think he wants us to look to Jesus. I realize the passage ends and James moves on. We'll talk about what he moves on to next week. I realize he doesn't go into a whole big gospel presentation of, you know, here's what you need to do to become a follower of Jesus. But I think in his mind what he's trying to do is set this issue up so that we're driven to look to Jesus for hope. Just think with me about the end of Jesus' life. All of these issues that we just talked about played into the last moments that Jesus was on the earth, to his last days on the earth. One of Jesus' followers, Judas Iscariot, spent three years playing church, so to speak, following Jesus around, listening to Jesus, watching the miracles. Scripture gives us every indication that he even performed some of those miracles himself when Jesus sent the disciples out. And the Bible says that all along during those three years, Judas, the treasurer of the group, was stealing petty cash out of the money bag. Why? It's because he thought a little bit of money would make him happy. It's because he thought that money would give him a little more security than Jesus could. It's because ultimately money was more important to him than following Christ. It's because he cared more about a little extra change in his pocket than he did the glory of God. So he spends three years hardening his heart, stealing from Jesus. You you ever thought about how foolish that is? You're stealing money from a guy who heals people at a distance and walks on water and controls the weather and your heart is so blinded by sin. You remember Paul told Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of different sins. You'll do all kinds of dumb stuff once money's your God like trying to steal under the table from Jesus. So he did it for three years, and then at the end of Jesus' earthly life, Judas saw an opportunity, and the opportunity was to make a buck, to sin against God and to hurt someone else for his own advancement. So he cashed in his relationship with Jesus for a relatively small bag of money. What are you going to do with that money, Judas? How far is that money going to take you? That's not going to last you the rest of your life. It's not going to allow you to live in luxury. It doesn't make sense. Why would you do it? It's because when money becomes your God, you do all kinds of foolish things. Look, humanly speaking, we could very safely say that Jesus died because Judas loved money. All of these things played out in his life. You could also step back and see the bigger picture, which is always helpful. And you could remind yourself of what Jesus said in his last days. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I do it willingly. I'm going to lay it down, and I'm going to take it up. And I'm going to lay it down because God's people are broken by sin. They chase after all kinds of false gods, including the little G God, the the idolatry, uh, the idolatrous uh, pursuit of money. These people are so wrapped up in this stuff. The only way that they can be freed from is if I laid my life down for them. So I'm going to die for their sins. I'm going to raise from the dead, and I'm going to give them new life. And Jesus didn't say, I'm laying down my life. So they can keep chasing idolatry here, chasing money here, and then go to heaven someday. But I'm laying down my life that they would be my people. That they would know eternal life. Not just when they die and go to heaven, but right now. That there would be a change of heart that changes who they are in the direction of their life. That they would hear my voice, the shepherd, and follow me. Jesus laid down his life to connect it to the book of James to make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's where we started in the book of James. God's purpose in your life is that you be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He doesn't want to just save you and leave you chasing the idol of money, He wants to free you from that and save you from that so that you are whole and complete. And the only way that that happens in my life and the only way that it happens in your life is if we look to Jesus. And we say, this is the one who died for my love for money. He died for it. It cost him his life. And he died not just to forgive me of that, but to free me from that. So that I would hear his voice and I would follow him. That as over time I become more and more like Jesus, I would end up being perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's his purpose in your life. And James writes this warning. It fits in with all the other warnings about money. And what he's doing is he's saying, you need Jesus.